Guys can grab a seat. Thank you for being a singing church, by the way. One of my favorite things about you guys is you sing. I love it. Well, faith, as we've been discussing, faith is a race. And it's not a sprint. It's an endurance race. This is the way that the the author of Hebrews wants us to see, wants us to think about uh, the idea, the subject of faith, which has really been the focus of the last few weeks here in Hebrews chapter 11. And what God is trying to do ultimately in all of us, all of us that have said yes to his calling, have come into his kingdom, what he's trying to do is he's, he's trying to bring glory to his own name. And one of the primary ways that he does that is through showing off our faith. And, and he shows off our faith because our faith ultimately is one of his greatest masterpieces. God is a master craftsman. He's a master craftsman. He bore faith into you. He planted faith into you by grace. He has, he has um, been working everything in your life together for your good. He's, he's providentially put all of these things in your path in order to, to birth, if you're, if you're a believer, in order to birth this thing called faith, this trust in God. And now we're spending our life not only developing and growing and maturing our faith, we're spending our life letting the, the quality of the craftsmanship of Christ in the way that he's made faith in us become famous, become seen, become exposed to the world. Faith is more accurately gauged by longevity than it is by productivity. Did you know that? It's more accurately gauged by longevity than, pro- than, than productivity. We tend to think about faith and what it looks like as sort of a, a quick burst of energy running a, a dash, a 500-meter dash or something. But in reality, what, what really faith, when faith really shines, when faith really glorifies God, it's, it's in the endurance race. It's in the long haul. It's in the, the long obedience. Why does endurance and longevity, why does it um, bring more attention to God through our faith? Because false faith, and you might know this, false faith can generate a lot of activity for a while. But only true faith will endure to the end patiently, right? There's a lot of, uh, of time where you can just generate a lot of busyness for the Lord. But the long haul, the, the long race is often the most obvious tell sign that there is real and authentic faith. The Bible in the New Testament talks a lot about the importance of two things when it comes to our faith. One is time and the other is trials, Time and trials, those are two ingredients that oftentimes mingle their way into our faith. Time, meaning we don't just uh, get saved and go immediately home, right? We spend a lot of time following Jesus. We're waiting. We're waiting patiently. And, and the, other, the other thing is trials. God allows often struggles into our life. And in the Bible, the New Testament authors actually tell us, interestingly, that we should be stoked about those trials, which is bizarre. Why should we be stoked about those trials? 1 Peter 1.6 says, in this, you, in this you rejoice, Peter, you're, you're, you're excited about this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested, note that word, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what Peter's saying here. He's saying the reason you can rejoice in your trials 
is because what trials do is they reveal the, the, the quality of the faith that God is working in you. It uses the word testing, and, and, and I, need, I need to understand when it, when it says God is testing us, that's not as though God is in heaven um, turning up the heat going, hmm, I wonder if their faith is genuine. I'll find out. Let me blast the heat. That's not the picture that Peter's trying to paint here. The picture here that Peter is painting of, of testing is rather of a master craftsman who is so confident in the work that he's done that he purposely puts his product into the forge, into the heat, in order to, re- in order to reveal and expose the quality of his craftsmanship. So, so God's not allowing tests and trials in your life to see, oh, I wonder if they're really a believer. He's allowing tests and trials in your life to glorify himself through the quality of the faith that he's worked in you. That's what a master craftsman does, all right? My, my brother, he likes to make knives. He makes them from scratch. He just gets metal, and he, he forges them, and they're, they're amazing. And he, he gives me free knives sometimes, and he always gives it to me saying, you got to test it out for me. You got to put it through its paces, you know, so I do, and I'm not, and I don't go easy on it. I, I, I really, really, you know, I don't, I don't want to say I don't take care of these knives, but I, but I really field test them. Why? Because my brother is confident when he gives me this, this thing's going to hold up. And so when I, when I use the product, it's actually bringing attention to the craftsmanship of my brother who makes the knife. The same thing is true of our faith. When, when we go through trials, when we go through struggles, and we endure through those struggles and those trials, what are we doing? We're bringing attention to the work of the craftsman. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, uh, just keeping that in mind, you might ask the question, okay, but how do we endure? If enduring faith is the goal, how do we endure? What is the key to that? Now, we're going we're gonna to work through Hebrews, but I just briefly, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 10. So keep your finger in Hebrews. Flip over just to Luke chapter 10, just for a moment. I want you to see something here. Now, remember, Jesus is preparing his boys, his disciples. Uh, he's preparing them for his departure. And he is trying to stitch into them not only uh, a love and affection for him, but an enduring faith, a confidence that will see them through when, when, when Jesus goes to the cross and, and resurrects ultimately, and they, and they begin to become persecuted, all these things. And so there's, there's something happening here in Luke. Let me give you the backstory uh, real briefly. What happens is Jesus sends out 72 of his followers, and he says, I want you to go into the villages and the surrounding areas, and I want you to declare that the kingdom is coming, and I'm going to give you power, and I'm going to give you authority, and you're going to go in, you're going to be able to do the things that I do. You're going to be able to cleanse and, and, and cast out demons and et cetera, et cetera. You're going to be able to do all that. I'm going to give you the power and authority to do it. So these 72, they go off, and they go on their little missions trip, and, and they come back, and they're pumped. They're totally jazzed because what do you know? Jesus really did give them authority. They're totally stoked on this. And so verse 17 of Luke 10, it says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, they're as surprised as anybody. 18, and he said to them, Jesus responded, he says, "I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, I don't know exactly what he means by that, but, but I, what I think it means is that uh, Jesus is very aware that in the, in the metaphysical realm, in the spiritual dimension, Satan's power is at already beginning to fall because the authority and the power of the kingdom of God is breaking in through Jesus, through his presence, through his authority. He says, behold, I've given you all authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall harm you. 
So these guys come back. They're excited. Why are they excited? They're excited because productivity is exciting. Winning is exciting. I mean, isn't it? Isn't, there's nothing funner than things going your way. These guys went out and, 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 and things worked well for them. People heard their message, right? And they're excited about it. Now, Jesus needs to temper these guys just a little bit. He needs to direct their ambition just a little bit because what he doesn't want them to do is he doesn't want them to get so excited about the stuff they're doing for him that they begin to anchor their faith into the stuff rather than the source. And we do that, don't we? Our faith can very gradually, if we're not careful, subconsciously, it can start to um, be rooted and grounded into what we're doing for God rather than what God has done for us. So look at what Jesus says. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather, he says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's so interesting, right? Because Jesus is saying, I'm glad that you had some stuff. I'm glad that you're movers and shakers. I'm glad the authorities, I'm glad that there's growth in the church and that the ministry's thriving and that people are getting saved and that's so cool and I'm glad that there's healing and I'm glad that there's power and that's all good. And get, Jesus is saying, guess what? I gave you all that power and I gave you all that authority. But he says, hey, don't take your rope and clip it back to your belt. Make sure that your hope ultimately is not clipped to the things you did to your productivity, but rather to your place in heaven, to something bigger, to something farther beyond. Now, just one more thing in this text, and then we'll, we'll, we'll transition over to Hebrews. Jesus then takes a moment, and we're not going to read it, but he, he prays for them. And then he turns to them, and he says something very interesting. 23, I'm still in Luke 10 here. He says, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is, is kind of like, hey guys, bring it in, bring it in. Listen, do you have an, any clue how cool what you're getting to witness is? Do you have any clue how many prophets, how many kings, how many faithful saints, how many faithful faith racers that have ran the race of faith in God's covenant community for hundreds and hundreds of years? David and, and Enoch and Abel and Noah and the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah and Daniel. And, and, and do you have any clue, Elisha and Elijah, how many of these wished that they could see what you're getting to see because their faith was ultimately rooted in the reality of what these guys were experiencing right then. Their faith was rooted in a future reality. Who were these prophets and kings? Well, that's what our text is going to tell us this morning. These prophets and kings that lived their life longing to see what the disciples and ultimately us are getting to live in, the, the, the reality of God's kingdom, even now breaking into this world these guys live to see it. And so we're going to look at those through uh, Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Now, let me give you a little bit of a frame for our text this morning. Jesus uh, gives, essentially, the, or essentially, I should say, the, the, the lesson Jesus gives his disciples here is the same lesson that the author of Hebrews is trying to give us this morning. And that's why I start there. Because really, the, the same idea, hey, make sure your faith is rooted in who he is, not what you're doing for him. And hey, make sure your perspective is bigger, is beyond what's going on now. It's the same exact lesson that we're supposed to get out of our text this morning in Hebrews. Now, if you guys are new and you're just joining us, 
Let me just catch you up. We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we've slowed down significantly once we hit chapter 11. And chapter 11 is famously referred to as the Hall of Faith. It's this long list that the author gives us of all of these saints who lived in the Old Testament and how their faith or what their faith looked like. And he's using it for for a very particular purpose. And one of those purposes is to bring inspiration and encouragement to those who are still running the race that others have run it before. I recently, a couple days ago, I watched uh, the movie Dunkirk. Have you guys seen the movie Dunkirk? It's a historical reenactment of a real story that happened in World War II. And uh, it was before the U.S., I believe, it was before the U.S. jumped into the war. I can't remember exactly. But all of the British army, like a massive percentage of the British army and their allies, the French army, had basically been cornered up against the sea, uh, unable to retreat, unable to get out, and the British Navy was unable to go and to get these guys. So something like 300,000 British troops were trapped, basically waiting to be slaughtered. It was was a really intense thing. And so um, they didn't know what they were going to do. And so finally, they, they came up with this idea, let's put a call out to all of the civilian boats. Let's put a call out to all of the, 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 um, yeah, the, the, the commercial fishermen and, and commercial boats and just say, hey, we're, you're, you're, your queen requires your service. We need you to go get our boys and bring them home. And the craziest thing, thousands of boats responded to the call. And, and of course, you know, they, they, they did a very good job of depicting it. First, the, the fleet says yes. They say yes to the calling, and the fleet is going across the sea, and it starts with one boat, and then it zooms out, and you see three boats, and then five boats, and then it zooms all the way out, and there's a fleet of boats responding to the call. And I was watching that, and I thought, that's Hebrews 11 right there. It's Hebrews 11. It's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's saying, look at this person, look at this person, look at this person. Each of these all responded to the call of their king. They all said yes. They all signed their vessel over to Yahweh. They said yes. My life's not myself. I'm going to run the faith race. And when, when you just look at one or we just look at two, okay, big deal. But when you zoom out and you look at the whole aggregate of all the faith racers who have lived, it's impressive. And it's inspiring. And it's encouraging. And, it, and, it, and it's supposed to bring us and those that this letter was written to to a point of, of, of encouragement to go, I can keep running. Because look at all these people that have responded in faith to God. That's why it's called the Hall of Faith. I remember when, when, uh, when Randy was pregnant, my wife was pregnant with our first, you know, pregnancy is intimidating. You've never done it before. Oh my gosh, like am I going to be able to do this? Kind of a crazy thing. And I remember one of the things that gave her great comfort was that, the, that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women had done this before. <laughs> right? She's not the first to give labor. And in fact, they didn't have things like, you know, epidurals and stuff back then, right? So, so the, the, there's comfort in knowing, you know, I'm not the first. And, and that's kind of been the whole idea of Hebrews chapter 11. The author's trying to get us to, to see that we're not the first to have, you know, lived lives of faith, this, this race of faith. We're not the first, and, and we probably won't be the last. There's great encouragement that. And he's trying to get us to, to see that we can keep running because Jesus ultimately has run the race perfectly for us. We're not running out of our own effort, our own achievement. We're not trying to produce enough faith so that we get to get into the pearly gates. No, we're running out of the victory of the perfect race of the perfect faith racer who is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate high priest. He's the ultimate king. He has created the ultimate temple. He's coming to create a new and ultimate world. He is our ultimate intercessor. Jesus has made our faith race possible. And Jesus purchased Uh, and accredited righteousness, not just to us, but to all saints who've ever chosen to follow God for all of time. 
Jesus died for Abraham. He died for Noah. Thank you, Angie. He died for, for somebody's awake. You know, he died for Enoch. He died for all of the Old Testament saints. And so we can have great confidence as we run our race because the stands are filled with this great cloud of witnesses, this great cloud, this great testimony of people that have said yes to Christ before. And because we're running in his victory, we can keep running. Amen? Okay, that's my whole sermon. We can go home. No. That's the idea of the whole literary unit uh, that we're working through. Now, today, the author is going to conclude the Hall of Faith, and he's going to rush through basically 1,000 years of chronological redemptive history in, in just a few sentences. It kind of reminds me of when you're, like, drawing a garage sale sign, and you start four, and you realize you run out of room, and you're like, sale, garage sale. You know what I mean? I, I always start a little ambitious with my letters, and I run out of room. He, he, he's like, a lot of time to Abraham, a lot of time to Moses. Oh, running out of space here. We better cram it in. So he's going to just kind of rattle off um, a lot of redemptive history. And what I'm going to try to do here is I'm going to try to stay out of the weeds, but I'm also going to try to do uh, some, some amount of service to all of these names that are dropped in this list and help you kind of see the story arc of redemption through the biblical narrative. So Let's see if we can do that, um, and we'll kind of circle back around and make some, some big points here. Here's an outline for you of our text. Uh, we're going to split it up into three sections. First, the victory of faith in victory. That's 32 through 35, A. And then, <laughs> two, the victory of faith in tragedy. So we have the victory of faith in victory. We have two, the victory of faith in tragedy, and that's 35B through 38. And lastly, the victory of faith in expectancy. 39 and 40. Let's just dive right in. So the author says, verse 32, what more shall I say? In other words, I don't need to keep going. I've been listing off all of these saints. I've been painting this picture of this cloud of witnesses. What more do I need to say? But I'm going to keep saying more is kind of what he says. Uh, I could end here, but I'm not going to, kind of like that. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Who are these people that are listed? Some of them might be very familiar to you. Some of them might not be familiar to, to you at all, depending on how much you've spent time reading the Old Testament. The first four, uh, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, these are what are typically known as the judges. So if you read through chronologically, um, most people give up on Leviticus when they start from Genesis. But if you just happen to miraculously make it all the way to the book of Judges, you will encounter these four characters. And there was a particular period of time in Israel's history where Joshua had led the Israelites into the land, and uh, unfortunately, they didn't obey God all the way. They didn't remove the Canaanites completely. And for that reason, um, idolatry and sin and, and wickedness really permeated the culture of Israel for most of their history. And when, when there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own sight is the famous phrase of the book of Judges. And so what would happen was Israel, uh, some theologians uh, very untheologically called Judges uh, the book of the toilet bowl, right? It's, it's, it's this cycle if you read the book of Judges, it's this cycle where Israel falls into idolatry, falls into sin, falls into evil, and then because of that, they become ensnared in sin and evil. They become captives of some other country, and so they cry out to God, and they say, God, please save us, and then God graciously and redemptively sends a judge, 
I know you might have been thinking judges, you were picturing the black robe and the white wig, but uh, judge really actually means more like ruler, somebody, somebody to step in and to be an agent of redemption for God to free his people for a time. So there's a series of judges in the book of Judges. Four of them are listed here. Now, if you go and read these guys, you, you know, don't expect too much because they're pretty terrible, actually. Uh, Jephthah, I mean, I don't even want to... I mean, the book of Judges is it's pretty R-rated. You know, I, and these, these guys were a mixed bag. But one thing we do know about them is that they, at one point, and at some point in their life, they did say yes to the Lord. Okay, now he also lists in there not only the judges, he lists Samuel, who was kind of a a unique hybrid of a person. He was both a judge, uh, the last of the judges, and he was also a priest, very faithful and a very godly and a very zealous priest for the holiness of God. And then we have David, who ironically, he doesn't say anything about it, hardly at all. Uh, David is great king, this great um, picture, this great type of Christ, the, 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 the king, uh, the gold standard of the king in Israel's history. He, he barely mentions him. And then we have the prophets, this college of God's witnesses. You know, there were prophets from the, from really, I mean, Moses was a prophet, but um, from the time of Moses all the way on, God always sent witnesses, witnesses into his people um, to, to, tell the, to, the, to, to tell the truth and to call Israel back. So we have this college of witnesses sent through the ages to speak forth the word. Now, this, this is who these people are. Well, what did they do? It lists some things here. First of all, they, they obtained military and judicial victories. The pacifists have a really hard time with verses like that. You know, uh, wait, by faith, it says they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So that's kind of interesting. Um, The reality is, is that God uses, this is a side note, but God uses different agents at different times to control evil and to judge evil. Okay, so great example of this was God used Israel as an agent to judge the Canaanites. But then guess what? Israel got worse than the Canaanites, so God raised up Babylon to judge Israel. And Babylon was really bad, so then God raised up the Persians to judge Babylon. So on, so on, so on. Okay, God in his providence, working in a fallen world, he does um, oftentimes use imperfect agents to, uh, to enforce justice and to limit evil in this world. And that's what Romans tells us about how we should think about governments. Governments are imperfect because they're human governments, but they do work to restrain evil. So these four judges were ultimately um, acting in faith when they chose to say yes to God's particular calling on their life, which was to, uh, f- for a particular time, judge Israel and, uh, and, and, and deliver them militarily. The other thing he says they do is they, they walked into the promises of God. That's referring to David fulfilling the kingly promise. He says they, they uh, quenched the power of fire. Now, this is kind of a fun game. Let's, let's turn this into a game. Uh, I'll read the phrase. You try to guess who it's talking about. Uh, quenched the power of fire. Who in the Old Testament might that be talking about? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nice job. Somebody gets a gold star. Okay, uh, heaven points for you. Uh, just don't sin and you can keep them. Okay, I'm joking. That's a joke. If you're new, you're like, what? Um, Escape the edge of the sword. Who might that be referring to? David? Yeah, good job, Bob. Um, how about this one? We're made strong out of weakness. Well, I don't know. That refers to a lot of them. Uh, who? Gideon? Samson? Yeah, hadn't thought about that. You guys are smarter than me. Okay, we already knew that. Stop the mouths of lions. 
Daniel, good job. You guys went to Sunday school. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. So, so he's, he's drawing up not only these individuals, but he's also drawing up some of the things uh, that they did in faith. Now let's get out of the weeds here for a moment. Um, notice that uh, faith can see us through to victory and rescue at times. Okay, faith can. Now, I want you to understand, though, that, that the, the, the deliverance of these individuals, because here we're talking about victory and, and deliverance, like, man, the lions didn't eat me. Woo! You know, yeah, I, I did conquer the kingdom. Woo! God raised up the judge and delivered Israel. That's awesome. That's victory. That's great. God didn't do that because these people had faith. Do you understand that? God, God didn't shut the mouth of the lions because Daniel had faith. Daniel had faith. And God shut the mouth of the lions. How do I know that? Well, I'll tell you. Because keep reading. The rest of the list, things don't go so well for them. See, if we just stopped at at verse 35, we would think, see, when you have faith, you don't die on your deathbed. Die on your deathbed. uh, You don't die on your sickbed. That's what I meant to say. You always die on your deathbed. (laughs) So dumb. It's like, I was born a baby. Okay. Um, You you know, if you just read the first part of this, you would really genuinely think, oh man, like if I have faith, no lion will devour me. And we have to be careful because some people teach the Old Testament that way. See, Daniel had faith, therefore the lions didn't eat him. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had faith, therefore the furnace didn't burn them up. So if you have faith, your life's going to be awesome. Ever heard that teaching before? It's wrong. How do I know that? How do I know that? Well, there's a dude in here that got sawn in half. His name's Isaiah. Was he faithful? Did he have faith? Oh, man. In fact, I I would actually say that the list that, that had things go well for them were worse than the list of people that had things go poorly for them. The prophets. Let's just read it. Verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Isn't that interesting? They were willing to be tortured. They were willing to lose their life because they had this idea that a resurrection life was more valuable than escaping death in this life. They had a resurrection perspective. 30, 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Again, that's referring to Isaiah according to tradition. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute. That means uh, they they wore uh, peasants' clothes, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, I need you to see this. This is very important. Some of the people in this list didn't get eaten by lions. Some of them were killed by the sword. Some of them went into the furnace, and they didn't come out. So what's the point, Sam? What's the the lesson? It's very simple. God is trying, I told you in the introduction, God is doing one thing with your faith, and that's glorifying himself. He's bringing attention to the faith that he has created within you. He can do that two ways. He can do that by healing you, and he can do that by not. Both ways, ultimately, glorify him. And this is a very important perspective. It's a very un-American, very un-Western perspective. Because in America, we don't like suffering, and there's always a product that we can buy that will stop our suffering, right? 
There's always some kind of a, a pill I can take, and all of a sudden, everything will be better in our culture. But in reality, when, when we're living for eternality, we go, you know what? God is going to glorify himself through my life, and he can do that by shutting the mouth of the lion, certainly. He can do that by curing cancer, certainly. He can do that by fixing my broken marriage, certainly. He could do that by, you know, I almost got in a car accident, and the last minute, somehow, my, my wheel stayed on the ground. That's, he does it all the time, doesn't he? You guys ever experienced a miracle, miraculous deliverance? You guys ever thought you were, you were going to die and you didn't? God ever deliver someone you love? He does it all the time. Why does he do it? For his glory. But the other way that God gets glory through our faith is when he allows us to go through and to not be delivered, at least in this life. Now, you should ask, well, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Why, why would he let me die of cancer? Why would he not heal me? Wouldn't, wouldn't the, the option of healing always be the more glory? I mean, surely God always wants to heal. Surely it's always God's will that he want to heal. And anything else is just a lack of faith, right? No, wrong. How is it that God allowing sickness and allowing hardship at times in our life glorifies him? I told you in the beginning. Because, see, the product of your faith is most seen in the furnace. The product of your faith is most seen when things don't go your way. Faith without endurance, it's not real faith. Endurance is what exposes the quality of the craftsmanship of the Father that has worked this faith within us. There's nothing more impressive to me. I mean, it's, it's impressive when God heals, and I love it, and we pray for it. But there's nothing more impressive to me than when I see, and I've seen a lot, when I see a saint on their sickbed, on their deathbed, on their deathbed. And they don't get healed, yet there's a smile on their face. Because their joy is so enmeshed with a transcendent and an eternal reality. The riches of Christ are so wrapped around their heart. Their stock is all in heaven. Their value system is completely invested in the kingdom of Christ. Their country is coming. They found the treasure in the field. And they say, take my body. It's just of no value. God's got a better one for me. I get another one. That, that glorifies Jesus. Did you know that? The way we suffer glorifies Jesus. The way we suffer. And listen to me. If you want to be a weak and wimpy Christian, then don't see suffering as of any value of God. Just see it as something to be wished away by having enough faith. Or you can say, even if God doesn't heal me, I have enough faith to know that he's going to use that for his glory and for my joy. Because that's how good he is. That, that, that's what creates Christians with grit. That's what creates Christians with endurance. Christians that don't just say, well, I'll follow God if things go my way. And if God doesn't come through me for me in the way that I want, then I'm out. That's not faith, guys. That's not saving faith. That's called legalism. That's called God, I'll do what... I'll do this if you give me that. Faith says, take my life. It's up to you. I trust you. So that, that's what I, I want you to see. If I, see, I want you to see one thing in here. I want you to see that, yes, there's victory. David had victory. Kingdoms fell. He used Samson. He used Jephthah. He used Gideon. Uh, he shut the mouth of the lions. And sometimes he didn't. And at the end of the day, he gets the glory and we get the joy. Now, verse 39 the victory of faith and expectancy. Now, this is such an interesting verse. Really tune in here if, if you're sleeping. Um, verse 39. Uh, this is so interesting. 
He says, all these, now all these refers to all the hall of faith. Chapter 11, verse 1, all the way forward. All these, he's going to conclude, he's going to land the plane, he's going to land the plane, and he's going to say, everybody that I just talked about, all these, though commended, meaning though they were, um, they received commendation through their faith, they didn't receive what was promised. They never got it in this life. The thing they were living for never came in this life. And here, verse 40 gets really interesting. Since God had provided something better, not for them, what does it say? For us. Well, how did, now we're in the picture. He's been talking about Old Testament saints, Old Testament saints. All of a sudden, there's an us here. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they, Old Testament saints, should not be made perfect. What is that saying? I'll tell you. It's saying that God was willing to make the saints of old wait so he could expand the guest list to include you and I. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad? <laughs> Aren't you glad? I mean, there, there is a fuller picture that God is developing, and that fuller picture includes you and I. Patience. Patience is the other side of the coin to faith. Faith and patience, they're, they're, they're the same thing. Patience is saying, I'm going to believe, and faith is, say, is saying, I'm going to believe that what is coming is more real than what is now. We learned that in the beginning of chapter 11 when we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is when what has not yet happened tangibly or chronologically is so real to us that we live like it's real and like it's here and like it's now. And so the Old Testament saints, they were okay with dying physically in this life without receiving the ultimate promise. Why? Because they believed in a resurrection. Because they believed they were going to wake up and the kingdom of God would be fully at hand. You know, Abraham is going right into the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, he's at the right hand of the Father with Jesus right now. I mean, he's, he's, he's up there right now worshiping in the spiritual realm. And when Jesus comes back and recreates heavens and earth, Abraham's going to walk right into that. So for them, there is, no, there is no sitting in the grave waiting around. So for those guys, they were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to die because they knew God was doing something bigger. And that bigger includes all you and I. Isn't that great? Okay, let me, let me conclude here. So So what? So big ideas that we're supposed to grab here. For those in the faith community, this, is, uh, this life is not about this life. It's about preparing and revealing the superiority of the next life. So, so whether God heals you or whether God doesn't heal you, it's up to him. But it doesn't matter because our riches, our hope, our joy is not rooted in this world or our circumstances. I know this is review for you guys, but you really need to remember this. And if it doesn't seem that important to you right now, it sure as heck becomes important when you get a really bad note from your doctor. Because what trials do, what suffering does, when the heat gets turned up, it immediately shows you what your faith is really in. If you find out you have a terminal illness and all of a sudden your faith collapses, it turns out your faith was actually in you feeling healthy and feeling good and having a life. If you get that news, the fire gets turned up, trials come all of a sudden, and you go... Oh, that's really hard. Man, I'm so glad that all of my treasure is somewhere that cancer can't get to. That's, that's the mindset of a mature believer. That's the mindset of someone who has invested in a kingdom that has not yet come. 
That's what we're meant to see here. See, the author is listing off all of these saints because he says, do you see the common denominator here? These guys were not living for this life. They were living for the next. It's basic Christianity. And they're, 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 the endurance of their faith exposed the quality of their faith. You know, you can get on Amazon right now and you can find a product that looks exactly like the expensive product and it'll be 10% of the cost. And you know what? They'll look exactly the same. You know how you tell the difference? You start using it. You start using it. And so what God's trying to do in us is, is he's saying, yeah, sure, anybody can say, I have faith. I follow Jesus. I'm going to go do a bunch of productivity. Look at all the stuff I'm doing for Jesus. He's like, that's great. Endurance will prove the quality of your faith. At the end of the day, if your faith can stand up against time and trials, it's authentic. And so a lot of times we think about our faith, we think about what am I going to do for Jesus today? That's good. That's important. But it's an endurance race. The, most, the thing you can do the most to glorify God is to say, how do I run this thing all the way to the end? How do I run this thing all the way? How do I be faithful? You say, Sam, why does that really matter? I mean, everybody screws up. No, it's, tr- it's true. It's true. But let me give you a very vivid and kind of, frankly, emotional example for me as to why endurance has to be part of faith. Let me give you an example of why faith without endurance is not only harmful, it's costly, it's devastating. There's two men, never met either of them, that had, have had huge impacts in my life in terms of the way that I think about scriptures and the way that I think about following Jesus. I, I've had thousands and thousands of, of, word, of their words into my ears constantly. Uh, those two men are Ravi Zacharias and Timothy Keller. Both of those men have just recently died. They were both old men. Not that old, but... Both of those men recently died. And both of those men, from the external, had very productive lives, right? I mean, they both just did a lot for the kingdom of God. They both preached in front of massive crowds. They both wrote books. They were prolific authors, debaters. They both saw a lot of people come to Christ and brought a lot of people to Christ by preaching the gospel. Both of them were were very, very profoundly impactful for me. One of them died... And it was exposed that they had been using their power and influence like a wolf to devour women sexually. It was devastating. Ravi's sin was so gross and so egregious that that it's hard for me to imagine that he really genuinely had been born again. I I have a really hard time with that. And and that really affected me and it affected many and it it started to, to, to really make me wrestle with things and it was costly to the kingdom. It was costly to the holiness of the name of Jesus, which should be the thing that bothers us the most. But then Tim Keller also died recently. And Tim Keller was faithful to the end. Was he perfect? No. Did he struggle? I'm sure. But when he got really sick, you could see that his love for Jesus was real. You could see that he absolutely believed what he had been preaching. That for him, his platform was not a way to manipulate women. His platform was not a way to get influence and feel good about himself. His platform was not a power lust. His platform was he genuinely loved Jesus and Christ had been formed in him. And suffering peeled off the layers and revealed whether or not there was a genuine faith there. Faith without endurance is costly. And, and, and God allows things in our life to expose and to, and to reveal what's really there. So I just, I just want to throw it out to you guys. Like, what, what's really there? How much of your faith is, 
I'm hoping God's going to do this for me. Maybe if I give him my sexuality and maybe if I give him my money and maybe if I give him my time, then my life will be better and, and I'll have a better, things will go good for me and, and I'll feel good about myself and I won't have to feel guilty anymore. That's not, that's not the gospel, guys. The gospel is, God, I have nothing to bring and all I want is you and you're the ultimate value in the universe. So will you form Christ in me no matter what happens in my life? Because I'm all in it. Because your love and your goodness and your superior reality is greater than anything I've ever experienced in this life. You can take my body, you can take my money, you can take my, I don't care, Lord, I just want you. That's, that's, a, that's a Christian response to the gospel. Why was Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, why were these guys able to sacrifice their life the answer is because they had found God to be so valuable. They found him to be so valuable. They said, take my life. My life doesn't matter in comparison to the superiority of knowing God. That's what endurance exposes in Christians. The way that we suffer, the way that we're persecuted, the way that we lose out in this life, it's our greatest testimony. And it exposes the reality of what God is really doing within us. So, let me just kind of try to give you some practical things here. The goal here would be to, to elevate our endurance. How do, we, how do we grow our endurance faith? Because again, to, to say it again, we're, we're not in a sprint here, guys. We're, we're not in a sprint. This isn't about, you know, how can I do a bunch of commotion and, and stuff for Jesus and productivity so that I feel good about myself? No, this is about how do I get to the end? How do we cross the finish line as faithful, as good stewards, men, Women, how do, we, how do we turn 80, 85, 90, 95? We start losing our mental faculties. We start losing our ability to, to control our bodies. How do we get there and be filled with Christ to the degree that we're a witness to our nurses? How do we, how do we get to the finish line where, where our kids and our grandkids sit? They stand up on a stage at our memorial and they say, they follow Christ to the end. How do we get to that finish line? How do we run that race? Not just, how do I do a bunch of stuff so I feel good about myself? How do I run all the way to the end? That's endurance. How do we do that? Let me give you three things. Three things. Number one, make his glory the goal. Make his glory the goal. The why always determines the what. You know that? Why you do something will, will ultimately determine how well you do it. Why we follow Jesus is the most important question. Why do we follow Jesus? Is it because we're trying to get something from Jesus or is it because we've found everything in Jesus? Christians do things for Jesus because we have everything in Jesus. Because Jesus is everything. And that's why the glory of God is our utmost concern. You know why Philippi exists? It doesn't exist to make a brand. It doesn't exist to say, look, we did it. We planted a church. Aren't we awesome? Philippi exists for the glory of God. And you guys exist for the glory of God. And your faith exists for the glory of God. And your body exists for the glory of God. And your money and your marriage and your kids and your productivity and your job and your relationships and your skills, all of it exists for the glory of God. A Christian is someone that recognizes that. That's your why. That's why you get up in the morning. The reason these guys could sacrifice in our text the way they did was because God was their everything. So they could give up anything. So make his glory your goal. Number two, make faithfulness your focus. This is really important. Make faithfulness your focus. Uh, 
we're outcome-driven people, aren't we? We do things to see things happen, especially, especially guys. I, I'm not a woman, so I can't speak for you. For, for guys, okay, um, we are productivity-driven, and we're, we, we love to metric, and we love to gauge. Am I winning? That's the question. How do, what do we oh, Get the ball in the hoop. Okay, that's the game. I'm on it. Get the ball through the posts. Get the ball over the line. Great, got the game. Cool. How do we metric success? Well, the ball's moving closer to the field. Perfect. We got the first down. Great. Let's keep going. That's how we think. So for Christians, what do we look to? How do we gauge success? How do we know if we're winning? I'll tell you how not to. Don't look at how much you're doing. Look at whether you're being obedient. Okay? Do not gauge faithfulness based off of productivity. Base faithfulness off of obedience. Because here's what will happen if you don't. What will happen is you'll get into your head that God told you to go do something, and maybe he did. Maybe God says, hey, I, wanna, you know, I want you to sell everything you have, and I want you to move to, to Okinawa, and I want you to be a missionary in Okinawa or wherever, okay? And you do that. And you're like, okay. And then you move there, and it goes terribly, and there's no converts. You're a missionary. There's no converts, and nothing seems to really happen. And then to make matters worse, they kick you out of the country, and you come home. And you come home, and you go, my faith is shipwrecked. Why is your faith shipwrecked? Because you're gauging success off of outcome and circumstance, and productivity. And God might say, well, I never really asked you to do that. I didn't say, go here so you can get this. I just said, go here. See, what we need to, what we need to have as the driving force of our lives and our faith is obedience to God. That's the pleasure that drives us. That's the joy that drives us. The, I just want to say yes to you, God. There's joy in saying yes, and even if everything goes badly, I'm just going to say yes, because yes there's great joy in that. There's no greater joy than just being faithful. So when you gauge whether or not you're walking with Jesus, don't look at, well, is God using me? Am I a mover or a shaker? Are things happening? Am I doing enough? Blah, blah, blah. Say, am I faithful? Am I being faithful? For some of you, that's stay-at-home mom. Man, you don't get to see anything happen. No one's patting you on the back. You're not getting up and preaching. You're not making things happen. You're not starting nonprofits. You're just getting up in the morning and wiping your kids' boogers and putting them to bed, and you're thinking, this can't possibly be winning. It is, if that's what God's asked you to do. You see, you make faithfulness the metric of success. You will be so at peace. (laughs) You'll be at peace. Number three, and this is probably the most important one. Number three, make his race your rest. So make his glory your goal. Make faithfulness your focus. Number three, make his race your rest. Look down at the text. I need you to see the culmination of all of chapter 11, the point that the whole of the chapter has been moving towards. It comes right here in chapter 12, verse 1. The author says, therefore, okay, in other words, because all of these people ran this race of faith, because all of these people said yes to God and and were willing to give their whole life to God, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, here comes the imperative, here comes the thing we're supposed to do, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run, here it is, with endurance... The race that is set before us, how? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, and for the joy that was set before him, 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we run our race? Looking to Jesus, the one who ran the perfect race. He already ran the perfect race. He's the perfect faith racer. He did it for you. The gospel is that by faith, you can have his perfect race time accredited into your account, imputed over the top of yours. So how do we run the race? We run the race by believing and acknowledging and responding to the victory of Christ's race. That's how we do it. So there's a lot of doing in Christianity. We don't do to earn. But the doing, the primary doing that we need to be as Christians is working to believe the gospel. That's your job. What does that mean? That means every morning I get up and go, it's his race. He ran it. How do I believe this morning that Jesus ran it for me? And then how do I live in such a way that reflects that I believe his race is all that matters? His righteousness has been accredited in my account. His perfection is all the Father sees. It is finished. How do I run in his victory? That's the life of the Christian. We live out of the victory of Christ. And that's how we endure. We endure by recognizing and believing that he already did. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay, why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father, as we conclude this, this Hebrews 11 section, it's just been such a journey. So thankful for this cloud of witnesses. So thankful, Lord, that, that you have called us to join those stands. Lord, for those of us that will go home before your return, we'll join those stands. We'll be part of that cloud of witnesses. And God, our desire, and I genuinely mean this, our desire is to cross the finish line as faithful, endurant racers who put all of our chips on you, Jesus, who put all of our stock in you and genuinely believe that, Jesus, your work and your life was sufficient for us, that it's all that matters, that the best part of us is not anything we've done, it's who we've trusted. Lord, so help us to live that out. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name.